It's the 8th of May, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast, and I am Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Peter Nash loves it when I say that. This week, the title of the show is The Beat Goes On. Of course, I'm talking about the COVID crisis, that strange new reality that is unfamiliar, if not unnerving, and just doesn't seem to want to stop. But yet, we have lots of new news and general reports that's probably worth talking about. I'll start off with some general rheumatology. We've talked about anakinra and its use in pseudogout before. ULAR and ACR had reports on that. Well, I think they materialized in a meta-analysis recently where they looked at 74 patients who were treated with anakinra for refractory CPPD, or a few, and that was about 85%, maybe about 20% who had other contraindications to other therapies. And in this cohort, anakinra was effective in 81% of those with acute CPPD or gout, and in 43% of those with chronic disease. That's sort of new data. The good news is very well tolerated adverse events in only 4.1%, something to consider beyond steroids or colchicine in people with acute CPPD or pseudogout. There's only one drug on the market that's approved for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, and that is, right, sertilizumab or Simsia. Well, there are other drugs that have been studying this and looking at this, and that includes Cosentix uh, or Secukinumab. And this past week, the EMA has approved Cosentix for uh, its use in active non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis um, based on the results of their phase three trial, the PREVENT trial. Uh, it is not yet approved for uh, non-radiographic axial spa in the U.S. I would expect it to be so in the months to come. There's a, an article that we missed. I think it was reported in JAMA a few uh, weeks ago about cigarette smoking in ANCA-positive associated vasculitis. Really interesting study. John Stone and co-workers looked at 473 ANCA-associated vasculitis patients, compared them to about 1,400 controls, um, and did basically smoking questionnaires. They showed that the um, ANCA-associated vasculitis patients were more likely to be former smokers or current smokers with basically having a 1.6 or 2.7 fold increased risk of developing ANCA-associated vasculitis. However, it was only seen for MPO-associated ANCA-associated vasculitis and not with PR3 AAVs. Kind of interesting. So vasculitis being um, a major issue, let's talk about vasculitis and a COVID patient, specifically about the use of rituximab. I found this is an interesting case report. You remember two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we said, you know, B cells could play a role in COVID infections and talked about an Italian case series of two patients with agamma globulinemia that did better than the five or six patients who had, um, uh, uh, what was the other one? They had um, a common variable immunodeficiency. Um, the common variable immunodeficiency patients did poorly. The agamma globulinemic patients looked like they did really, really well. Well, here's a report of a stable GPA patient who's been on rituximab for over a year, 
received their last dose of rituximab on the 5th of March, and the next day developed symptoms of active COVID infection. Within four or five days, the patient had progressed, was hospitalized, had high fever, developed respiratory failure, went on mechanical ventilation, was then treated with the usual, you know, onslaught of many drugs, including antiviral therapy, 10 days of BID hydroxychloroquine, and guess what? The patient continued to do well. On day 20, the patient was extubated. Um, at that point, the patient was negative for nasal uh, PCR swabs for active infection, was discharged nine days later on day 29 and went home. The point of the paper was, one, you can get COVID infection taking uh, rituximab. Two, this wasn't a death, so I don't think that's a, a negative story. That might be a positive story in this N of 1 experiment. Again, I think B-cell therapy, you can't really stop it. Um, you might want to avoid it in people who are well-controlled if they develop the infection. But uh, again, this patient did fairly well. The World Scleroderma Foundation came out with recommendations for the management of COVID in that population with scleroderma and its variants. It was a long paper with a lot of recommendations, including the usual ones on social distancing and hygiene and whatnot. And I, I tweeted five points that I thought were, were worth repeating, especially to a scleroderma audience. Number one, patients with systemic sclerosis could be at risk largely because of their lung disease and only if they have lung disease, that being interstitial lung disease. So again, there I might be saying uh, extra precautions would be in order for someone with systemic sclerosis and lung disease. Number two, it's best to continue scleroderma therapies mainly because you don't want to avoid the uh, uh, therapy and develop a lapse in disease control, which could increase risk. Number three, um, scleroderma patients don't need to be tested unless they have evidence of symptoms suggested of this infection. Number four, ACE and ARB should be continued in these patients. That's been the general guideline for many agencies while they're studying the role of you know, ACE2 receptors and what they mean in doing well or not doing well with COVID. And lastly, number five, there is no good reason to start or use hydroxychloroquine as a preventative agent in patients with scleroderma. It doesn't work with scleroderma, so I'm not sure why you would even be using it there. Maybe to manage arthritis, that might be possible. You know, some bad news is coming down the line about uh, the financial consequences of this disorder. The American Hospital Association has projected that in the U.S. there'll be a loss of $202.6 billion between March 1st and July 1st in the United States. That is roughly a loss of about $50 billion a month while we're under siege and under lockdown. When this will change, hard to tell, but that's the projection for right now. An interesting study came out um, this week from GUT. That's a GI journal where they talked about a, a limited cohort study of IBT, IBD patients, 79 patients. Uh, and these 79 patients were reported because they developed the COVID-19 infection. Uh, in that population, 46% had pneumonia, 26% were hospitalized, and 8% died. 6% were admitted to the hospital, and what they basically found that were at the outcomes 
were um, more likely to be related to active IBD and disease activity and not related to um, uh, IBD treatment. So again, it was the IBD and or the comorbidities that we would associate with bad, bad outcomes with COVID infection, but it wasn't the therapies that were being used for treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. An interesting report comes from the Journal of Allergy and, and Clinical Immunology, where they, uh, a group of French investigators reported on their studies in 26 patients, specifically looking at type 1 interferon immunoprofiling in COVID patients. Type 1 interferons, as you know, are important in, in, in innate immune responses and have antiviral uh, properties. They can run amok during adaptive immunity when an excess of uh, type 1 or alpha interferons can lead to a worsening of autoimmune disease and maybe even infections. Uh, as we heard from Lenny Calabrese during Grand Rounds on Tuesday night, there seems to be in many patients a deficit of interferon and that during the later phases when they're doing poorly, there's an over, overabundance of it. Well, in this particular study of 26 patients who were critically ill, hospitalized in the ICU, um, and being treated with standards of care, including um, antiviral therapies or um, um, immunotherapies. Uh, these patients did not do well. 14 out of 26 were, were on mechanical ventilation. When they looked at um, alpha, alpha interferon 2A, they showed that there was a rising peak in levels by eight, day 8 to day 10. They peaked, and this sort of coincided with the um, uh, uh, increase in viral replication. Um, and what they did show was that 20% of their population failed to make a rise in type 1 interferon. Turns out that those were the people who tended to do the worst, uh, have longer ICU stays, worse outcomes, etc. An interesting report um, from Italy about type 1 interferons playing a role in COVID. So we on the um, website this week, we talked about a number of things related to uh, outcomes in COVID-19. Uh, Thursday's report looked at thrombotic complications, really based on a number of reports that have shown up in the literature um, in New England Journal, in um, the British Journal of Hematology, and in an, uh, a pathology journal looking at basically vascular outcomes in COVID. And what was reported and what you can piece together, what I pieced together was, number one, there's a lot of vascular pathology uh, in the poorer outcomes in the late phases of COVID infection where, is where people die. So in the late phases of COVID infection, people that get to that phase are ones that have usually handled or um, gone by the viral um, phase of the illness and then have gone into a disease magnifying phase driven by an abundance of inflammation. If they're unlucky, they get the cytokine storm syndrome. And there are other patients who are having complications related to thrombosis. So in the pathology series, the autopsy series that I quoted, um, you know, yes, half of them had bronchopneumonia related to viral infection, but there were a lot of patients with pulmonary embolism, pulmonary vasculitis, um, thrombotic microangiopathy, basically pointing to the role of um, vascular disease in these poorer outcomes. Uh, researchers at Johns Hopkins have, are starting to look at 
the mechanisms underlying the thrombotic microangiopathy seen in COVID patients, and they postulate that it looks like a complement-mediated process, or what Michelle Petrie has called a complementopathy, where there's activation of C5 and downstream effects leading to a lot of complement-mediated damage, including all the things that you see in that terminal phase uh, and the cytokine storm. They have lymphopenia, high LDH, uh, anemia, um, sometimes microangiopathic uh, um, uh, uh, anemia. They have organ damage. Um, again, uh, this is what is commonly seen in HUS and in the uh, catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. Uh, and anyway, these in this British uh, Journal of Hematology report, they uh, postulate that this is a complement-mediated uh, 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 thrombotic microangiopathy and make a case for complement inhibitors being uh, um, studied in patients with um, COVID infection, severe COVID infection. In fact, those trials uh, are going on right now. Um, also, New England Journal yesterday talked about the presence of uh, patients with the lupus anticoagulant with active COVID infection, 34 patients studied, 31 had uh, evidence of, a, of a, a lupus anticoagulant. This sort of seems to dovetail well with an earlier report in, in New England Journal looking at the presence of antiphospholipid antibodies, IgA antiphospholipid antibodies, along with um, uh, glycoprotein 1 antibodies as well in patients who had thrombotic complications uh, and CNS disease. So it is seem to, seeming to come together. I think that this is what has led to a lot of centers um, treating hospitalized COVID patients with anticoagulation. And then there are these trials of complement inhibitors. We need to see more of this going, going into the future. Um, I had a report about hydroxychloroquine and QT prolongation. That comes from JAMA Cardiology. It's a study of 90 hospitalized patients with severe disease. Um, th th these 90 patients were treated with hydroxychloroquine. There was, they were 53 of them, about half of them were also on uh, azithromycin. Overall, there was a 20% risk of QTC prolongation in those treated with hydroxychloroquine defined as a greater than 500 millisecond um, QT interval. This was a little bit more frequent in those who were also taking the um, azithromycin or those who were taking loop diuretics. I bring this up because there seems to be a lot of concern about cardiovascular outcomes in the antimalarial treated patients. Recognize number one, these are sick patients with COVID who are hospitalized and have other cardiovascular comorbidities. Um, these are patients who are getting high doses of chloroquine and or hydroxychloroquine. And maybe it is under this circumstance that patients may be at higher risk for arrhythmias or cardiac complications or cardiac death, etc. It uh, turns out a lot of these deaths and a lot of these severe cardiac complications seem to be more linked to the comorbidities and the age of the patient rather than to QTC prolongation. But again, I don't think this is going to change what we do in rheumatology. We're using low doses, we're monitoring, we don't see this. I don't think an EKG is in the near future for any of my patients who are gonna be started on hydroxychloroquine. That would be a different story if one of my patients was being treated instead for active COVID infection with current protocols. Yes, monitoring EKGs and QTC intervals seems to be prudent, but in our regular care, I don't think we're gonna be changing um, the cardiac risk profile
uh, of what we're doing. Again, this tends to be a relatively rare phenomenon in our RA and lupus patients taking hydroxychloroquine. I had an interesting report, I thought, because uh, I wrote it, uh, on hydroxychloroquine and a lot of the confusion that abounds. You know, I basically said that there seems to be reason for it as to why it might work hypothetically, um, but in reality, it hasn't worked in other infections, and in reality, it hasn't yet proven itself to work. There's actually a New England Journal report from yesterday showing it didn't harm and it didn't help, and there are several reports showing worse outcomes uh, in early reports. But uh, you can read that if you want to get the lay of the land on hydroxychloroquine and COVID. But I'll end with um, the report, uh, part of the report that looked at basically supply issues of hydroxychloroquine. So um, what we do know is that there it, it was a real concern that this was going to go into short supply and our patients with RA and lupus wouldn't be able to get the drug. And there have been some reports of some constraints on finding drug, but it turns out that in the last month that hasn't seemed to be the case. Well, if you look at the FDA website on uh, drug supply issues, um, there's only one report of a short supply, and that comes from some far Sun pharmaceuticals where they say they have limited availability. If you look at the other source of short supply and shortages, uh, that comes from the AHSP site. That would be the, I don't know what that stands for, American Hosp Society of Hospital Pharmacists, something like that. Um, number one, they list that there are many suppliers of hydroxychloroquine, including uh, Amneal, Dr. Reddy, Major, Concordia, Mylan, Prasco, Rising, Sandoz, Sun, Teva, and Zytus. Of these, less than half of them have a listing of having a short supply that it would include Major, Rising, Sun, Teva, and Zytus. Uh, and that they say for most of them that they expect to replenish their supply within the next few months. There are um, a number of reports about stockpiling of hydroxychloroquine. Um, there's a report that 22 states and local governments have reported to stockpile 30 million doses of hydroxychloroquine. In addition to that, FEMA has shipped and stockpiled over 19 million uh, hydroxychloroquine tablets that were distributed to major cities around the United States and to VA centers. So again, I think it looks good. Number one, because of the negative reports about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine may lessen the fervor to hoard this drug or to take it as prophylaxis, which really nobody should be doing these days. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, again, there, are, there is enough supply out there right, right now to get us through, I think, the bulk of this into the summer. So um, here are my recommendations about hydroxychloroquine. Number one, don't use hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine to prophylax against the COVID infection. There's no evidence that would work. Don't stop hydroxychloroquine in your patients who are on it chronically. There's no sense in stopping good therapies, safe therapies that are working well in patients just because we're in an environment of hydroxychloroquine um, craziness. Um, it is okay to start hydroxychloroquine during this era as you normally would. Um, I think that if it's the preferred drug for the condition you're treating, go ahead and use it. Uh, I think it makes sense. There's no reason to stop. No, I don't think there's any reason to stop hydroxychloroquine in patients at the doses you use in patients who are actively infected with COVID-19. Um, recognize that um, these drugs are being studied in many centers around the United States. And if the patient is hospitalized and already taking hydroxychloroquine, they'll be excluded from those clinical trials, um, but they should likely continue the drug. 
Overall, there is an exceedingly low, low risk of cardiotoxicity or cardiovascular death in the doses and the manner in which we use hydroxychloroquine in our patients with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and other indications in your clinic. I, I think it's okay to refill hydroxychloroquine as you normally would. My patient wants a one-month supply, they get a one-month supply. If they've been getting three-month supplies, I give them a three-month supply. I let the local pharmacy be a bit of a gatekeeper, and we've seen some of that, where I write for a three-month and only one month is filled, but there's plenty of refills there. No one so far in my clinic has gone without hydroxychloroquine. And lastly, if you have a patient with suspected, one of your patients in your clinic with RA, lupus, spa, um, psoriatic arthritis, whatever, and you suspect them uh, as having COVID-19 or they have confirmed COVID-19, please register that patient with the Global Rheumatology Alliance. The website is room-covid.org. Um, they're collecting amazing data. They have over a thousand patients accrued thus far. Uh, in two weeks, you'll hear from the guy who started that, Dr. Philip Robinson, um, and he's gonna tell you the update from that registry and what's going on. A lot of interesting videos this week. I have a video um, coming up um, very soon with Barry Gruber talking about denosumab and whether you should be stopping that during the COVID era. I have an interesting conversation with two practitioners, Danny Ricciardi and Herb Baraff in Maryland about how they're getting through the current era. And lastly, be sure to tune in every Tuesday night for Tuesday Night Rheumatology, the Grand Round Series next week. Joan Merrill from the University of Oklahoma is going to talk about what's the difference or what the similarities are between COVID and lupus. Should be an interesting session. Thanks for tuning in. Watch the website for more news. Take care of yourselves.